14. Lord willing, time willing, we're hoping to do a good chunk of Luke 14 here. All the topics interlace with each other. And I hate taking a chapter like this and breaking it up into small pieces. So we're going to move at a pretty quick pace to make sure we can try to cover everything. And before we get started, let's do the smart thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, good to be here this morning. Thankful for the time just to hear and grow in what you have to say. And as always, Lord, we pray that you teach and we listen, Lord. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, Luke 14 here. Now, we're going to work backwards a little bit. I think it's important when you do a study like this to make sure you get the key points, the key verses that are important. So working backwards, look at the end of this chapter here. Please jump ahead to verse 35 and look at what Jesus says at the end. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's the first thing. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We need to make sure we're listening to what Christ is saying in this chapter, not only listening, applying it to our lives. You know, as Christians, we can do a lot of devotions, we can do a lot of Bible study, we can do a lot of prayer, we can do a lot of worship and fellowship and witnessing and serving. Those things are all good. But unless you're truly listening to what God has to say, what good does it do? We need to listen and hear. Not just hear it, but hear it and apply it to what we're doing. And the reason I think Jesus ends with that is because some of the points he says in this message are very difficult passages. Tough passages to apply and to apply to your life. Let's back up a little bit further. What are some of these tough passages? Look at verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's no way to water down that verse. I've tried. It says what it says. Those words mean what they mean. Jesus is saying, I need to be, I want to be number one in your life no matter what you're doing or what you're saying. Now, that's easy to say, and that's easy for us to agree to, but to put into practice, to put Christ first, that's the point of today's lesson. That's a tough thing. And jump back one other verse here for a key one. Look at verse 14. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Is we need to make sure we're looking past this world, looking towards eternity, and realizing sometimes things that happen in this world are not fair, are not right, and are not noticed. And we need to make sure we're looking at the big picture. Because we get too short-sighted sometimes. We have a tendency sometimes to focus on, well, no one respects me, no one understands me, no one appreciates what I do. Don't they see the work and the time and the effort I put into this? You may not be rewarded on this earth. Your reward comes in eternity. So those three points are what we're going to talk about here today. And it all comes down to he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, Lord, help us to hear. With that being said, let's jump into this. Verse 1, Luke 14. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. Dropsy is just a collection of fluid in the arms and the legs. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them saying, Which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. Now, we've talked about the Sabbath before and healing on the Sabbath, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. The purpose of verses 1 through 6 is to say that ministry always is what's important. Healing people, meeting people where they're at and trying to minister to them. You have to remember this whole healing on the Sabbath thing, that's not a law that God created. That's not an Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. This is man-made. And what Jesus is saying He goes, I will put aside all your man-made religion, all your man-made traditions, and I'm going to focus on making sure we can minister to people. Here's a man that is sick. Here's a man that needs healing. 
and I don't care what your rules say, we're going to make sure this person is taken care of. And that's the point that he's trying to do it. Now, this seems like this is a setup. I mean, look at this. Verse 1. They asked him to this meal, and they watched him closely. And there just happens to be, verse 2, happens to be a guy that is battling this. His arms and legs, his face is all swollen, retaining fluid. Now, I don't know for sure, but I'm willing to bet that the Pharisees were not close friends with this man. This man seems to be invited as a setup, hence they watched him closely. So what does Jesus do in verse 3? He asks a question, as we've said out here many times. Anytime you see Jesus asking a question, listen carefully. Because he never asks a question because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking a question to get to the bottom of it. So is it loud for me to heal? What's their great response in verse 4? Nothing. That's, that's their great response. These are the religious leaders and wisdom of the day. And he asks a simple question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And their response is nothing. And he even goes one step further. He asks another question in verse 5. And what's their response in verse 6? They can't answer him. See, when you set your life up with your own man-made rules and regulations, and you're not following just the true simplicity of the Bible, it leads to confusion. It leads to problems. You don't know what to do. Every now and then... This pops up. I remember years ago, there was a man that came into my office, and he was struggling with a lot of things. And he was making a lot of big decisions. Decisions about life, decisions about marriage, and kids, and moving, and work, etc. And these decisions were not good decisions. These were emotional decisions. We're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and on and on and on. So he stopped for a second, and I just simply asked him, have you prayed over this? Is this what the Lord's leading you to do? And what was his response? Silence. See, when you, when you really get down to the heart of the matter and you really say, what does the Lord want me to do? If you don't know what the Lord wants you to do, verse 4, it's silent. These Pharisees had made all these rules and regulations on, on Sabbath and healing. None of it made any sense. None of it was backed up in Scripture. And the response is silence. Jesus says in verse, and Jesus is trying to say here in verses 1 through 6, what matters most are people, ministering to people. And he builds on this, verse 7. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him who come and say to you, give place to this man, and then you will begin with shame and take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We all agree with verses 1 through 6. Put people first. Show love. I mean, this is Christianity at its finest. Why don't we do that? Why don't we put people first? I think the answer is found in verses 7 through 11. Because we're more concerned about us. I am more concerned about my wants than I am about your needs. You may be spiritually hurting. You may need guidance and love and, and grace and mercy. I'm more concerned about my wants. I'm more concerned about where I'm sitting. I'm more concerned about getting the attention I deserve. I'm more concerned about getting the credit that I deserve. Do you not know what I put up with? See, how can I focus on your needs when no one's paying attention to me? I mean, everybody should stop what they're doing and just pay attention to me. That's what we think. Proverbs 27 has a great little verse. Proverbs 27, 2 says, Let another praise you and not your own lips. 
How often do we not get the credit and attention for what we're doing, so therefore we feel like we have to praise ourselves so everybody else can see what's going on? How difficult it is at work, so you need to know how much I struggle. How difficult it is at home. How tough it is to live with you. How tough it is to raise those kids. How tough it is to serve and minister. And you really should just be thankful that I'm even in your presence. Because you're just blessed to know me. I mean, that's what's going on. Jesus says here in verses 7 through 11, it's not about you. It's not about you. No one cares where you sit. To be quite honest, some people don't even care what you're struggling with. Because why? We're too selfish looking at our own struggles. We have this mindset that it's all about us. And what Jesus is trying to teach us here in verses 1 through 6, that's about people that are hurting, people that need love, people that need God. That's the focus. Verses 7 through 11, it's not about you. Focus on other people. And when you focus on other people, that's Christianity put into practice. That's one of the things we try to ingrain to the boys at home, is this idea of act like Christians, putting other people's interests before you. We had a situation recently. It was Layden and it was Kenan. They were fighting over this fire truck in the middle of the uh, living room. Now, they hadn't got to the place of exchanging blows yet or anything like that, but it was building up, you could tell. So I walked in, and it turns into this dad, tell them to do this. Dad, tell them to do this. Now, I don't get into that. I tell them right away, I I dislike it a lot when I'm in the room, and they get into a little spit with each other. And so instead of talking to the other person, the first thing they say is, Dad, will you tell him to stop? My response is, no, I won't. I always tell them, and you may think this this is what I do. I say, Matthew 18 says this. If you've got a problem with somebody, you go to them first. If they don't listen to them, then you come get me. So then they tell them. So what happens is they're fighting over this fire truck. And I said, you guys act like Christians. Matthew 18 here. Come on. Put somebody else before yourself. Be a Christian. So Layden, who's three, he thought about it for a second. And he thought about what a Christian should do. So Layden said, give it to me now, Paul's, please. That's, that's what a Christian does. And I said, Layden, no. He says, you said we're supposed to use please and thank you. Yes, we are. So sometimes as a Christian, verses 7 through 11, I thought of you. I took a good minute out of my day and thought of you. Then I went back to thinking about everything about me. No one pays attention to me. No one cares. No one understands. Forget about where you're sitting and just minister to people. Why don't we do that once again? Because it's tough. Let's read on here and see why. Verse 12. Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Let's be honest. We, we get a group of people that we feel comfortable with, and that's who we hang out with. That's our clique. And so what happens is we have kids the same age, we have the same interests, the same work history. Just And so we hang around with people that we feel comfortable with. What Jesus is trying to say here in verses 12 through 14, it's not that it's wrong to have fellowship and have family That's a blessing. But what happens is, if you're so focused on your own group, your own clique, that you don't see, verse 13, the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, you're missing out. What Jesus is saying is, step out of your little group and go realize there's people hurting all around you. The poor is out there. Now, this word for poor in the Bible means both financially and spiritually. The maimed, the crippled, maybe crippled with sin. The lame, lame with sin, the blind to God. 
Get out there and spend some time with those people that are hurting in this world. As Christians, we got this great pat-each-other-on-the-back group, and we call it fellowship, which is wonderful. But there's also ministry of going out and being with the maimed and the lame, the blind and the poor. And Jesus is saying, put other people first. Quit focusing on where you're sitting and the attention you think you deserve, and just get out there and minister to people. Why don't we do that? Because of verse 14. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The reason I think we don't do these things as many as we should is because the return is not immediate. God says you're building up a bank account for heaven, for eternity. And sometimes you can go spend a day with the maimed, the poor, the blind, the lame, and guess what you get out of it? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now, there's going to be somebody who says, that's not true. You will walk away with a good feeling that you did something to help somebody. I've been a pastor for 13 years. I have sometimes walked away not having a good feeling. And I stop and I think, what just came out of that? What just came out of that? Did, did anything productive come out of that? I mean, was there any spiritual growth? I mean, are they even going to read the verses we gave them? I mean, it looked like they're more angry leaving than when they came in. Lord, that was a waste. Lord, I just spent the day with the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. It was a waste. I won't know the full effect of that until verse 14, until I get up to heaven. And I have to keep that eternal perspective. So why don't we minister? Because sometimes we don't get anything out of it. And let's just be perfectly blunt. We're selfish people. We think about ourselves. We think about the attention and the credit we deserve. We think about how much other people are thinking about us. And the truth is, it's not about us. And it's about us going out to the poor, the blind, the maimed, the lame, and ministering to them and showing love to them and, and being everything we can to them. That's the example that Jesus set. Verses 1 through 6. I don't care about your rules and your regulations. I care about this man, and this man is going to be healed. Verses 7 through 11. I don't care about where you're sitting. I don't care what people think about you because you only should care about what the Lord thinks. Verses 12 through 14. Get out there and minister and show love. Meet people where they're at. It's tough. It's difficult. This not be, may not be the social circle that you run with. It may not be the type of people that you normally hang out with. As we joke out here a lot, Lord, I want to be a missionary to the upper middle class. That's what I want, Lord. Nothing bad or gross. I don't want to hear any stories that make me squirm, that make me feel uncomfortable. I don't want to go over to people's houses that I, I just don't like. Lord, I don't want to minister to the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. But I'll minister to anybody that's healthy. I'll minister to anybody who just needs someone to pray the sinner's prayer with them. That's who I want to minister to. That's not ministry. Ministry is get your hands dirty, get down in the mud, and show love to anybody that walks in your house or near you. And that's what Jesus is trying to say here. And he says in verse 14, you don't do it because of what you get out of it. You do it because it's the right thing to do for all of eternity, showing love. He builds on this point, verse 15. Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, A certain man gave us great supper and invited many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. Now we need to stop right there, for example. 
There's two points in the story. Verses 18, 19, and 20 are the excuses why the invited guests didn't come. Verses 21 through 24 is what we're supposed to be doing. So when we go through this, verses 18, 19, and 20, there's three excuses here on why the people that were invited did not come. And this story, in this example, these are the excuses we use from going deeper in our walk in relationship with the Lord. Verse 18, But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I asked you to have me excused. Now, that, that sounds kind of legit. You know, I got this property I bought and I want to go take a look at it. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I remember when Don and I built our house, and we, we bought a couple acres, and I can remember that we would be just a few miles away, and it's like, oh, let's, let's go drive by the land again. We drive by the land, and there it was, flat, with weeds, nothing. And then the next day, let's drive by it again. Oh, let's get out. Let's get out and go walk it. So you go walk the flat land with weeds, because you're excited. There's, there's, a, there's an excitement about that. Well, the problem is in verse 18... Maybe it looks like he's never seen it. I mean, it kind of looks like he bought this and has never seen it. Well, first off, that's not real smart. Second off, what you see is, and someone may say, well, maybe not so. Maybe he bought it and he wants to go look at it again. Okay, I understand that. But really what you're looking at here in verse 18 is this person is saying, I'm putting some type of material possession in front of the feast with God. I'm putting something in front of going deeper with the Lord, and it's this possession, it's this item. Now, I don't know what that is for you, but I've seen people do that, where they get caught up in an item and they get caught up in a thing. And so this possession, this mindset takes over them, and instead of going deeper with their walk with the Lord, they're focusing on this, this thing, this item, this possession, this materialism. Now, we sit here and we say, that doesn't get me. Maybe it doesn't. Because we know as Christians, we can't take it with us. We know that. But you know what? Sometimes what I see is, it doesn't get me, but it gets my mind. I'll just keep going back to the same web pages on the Internet. Just keep looking at that thing again. Boy, you know how cool it's going to be when I can afford that, when I can buy that. I'll keep looking at those same pictures again, and then I'll analyze it. And I'll fill my shopping cart up with an item, and I'll keep changing little details on it. And it's like, no, I'm not going to get it. I'm going to put it back. I just keep going back to it. It controls my mind. That possession is what drives me. Got to be careful. What about the next one? Verse 19, another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Now, once again, this is a bit silly. You just bought a bunch of oxen, and you haven't tested them yet? What does this show in verse 19? This seems to show work. Work gets the best of you. And i got to be careful what I say here because I am not trying in any way whatsoever to put anybody down. We live in a world of mandatory overtime. We live in a world of, you know what, they're making me work six, seven days a week, 10, 11, 12 hours a day. That's the curse. It's a horrible thing. What I usually tell people in that position is, listen, your job obviously keeps you very busy. You have to make sure that whatever free time you have, you realize it's not free time. It's time to spend with your wife or your husband or your kids. It's time to say, listen, I can't make it to church on Wednesday or Sunday. I'm going to try to find a small group study throughout the week. It's a time to say, I'm going to try to hit that prayer group. It's a time to say, Lord, I only have this limited amount of time because of the curse of my job. And I want to make sure that I'm spending that time as best as I can with you. I've heard too many people, verse 19, use work as an excuse. Hey, once things slow down, I'm really going to get serious with the Lord. 
You know, I'm going to be honest with you, and I hope I don't step on toes when I say this. If you want to get serious with the Lord, you're not going to allow anything to get in that way. That's the truth. Because I've seen people that do work crazy hours, and they find time to be involved with stuff. Because it's important to them. We've got to make sure, verse 19, we're not making excuses. Verse 20, still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Family relationships. Now, this is a touchy subject. Because, see, this, this almost sounds bad. You know, this idea of, I'm so busy with my family that I, I really can't be with the Lord right now. See, we don't get a lot of time together, so any free time we have, we want to do things together as a family. I agree. As a family, get involved in service and ministry, going to church, finding people to go serve and minister to. Okay, yeah, I understand, but we want to do fun things as a family. It goes back to verse 14. What's your definition of fun? Eternal rewards or worldly? See, we've got, we got to be careful because I see families get so involved with commitments. The kid's got this going on and this going on and this going on. And so we can't do this because of that. And then we got this. And, and the calendar is so full of stuff. She can't even spell G-O-D in any spot on the calendar. Don and I run into that. we got five kids. I understand how easy it is to let commitments get the best of you. And you have to make sure you find that time to say, wait a second. The most important thing I can do as a parent is to train and raise my kids in Christ and realize that carries more weight than anything else. Because what happens is, verse 20, it sounds good. Boy, look at them. What a strong family they are. Look at all the things they do together as a family. Well, how's their relationship with the Lord? I don't know, but they're a strong family. Strong families have a strong relationship in the Lord. And you can minister as a family together. You can serve the Lord as a family together. You can find opportunities as a family to go out in your community and be a light and a witness. We've got to be careful that we don't allow verse 18 possessions, verse 19 work, verse 20 commitments to family to supersede anything with the Lord. Those really are just exactly what the Bible says. Excuses. What are we supposed to do? Verse 21. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house being angry. Now, why is he angry? He's angry because he's made this invitation to come. And everybody rejects. We reject that invitation from the Lord. Said to a servant, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Connect that back to verse 13. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go on to the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Basically what God is saying is the invitation goes out to all. And for us that are too busy, fine. Let's go get the maimed, the lame, the poor, the blind. Bring those in. And then if that gets not enough, go to verse 23. Go out to the highways. One translation says the country lanes, places you normally wouldn't go. Find the people. Bring them in. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Go to those hurting people of the world, the maimed, the lame, the blind, the poor. Show them love. That is what Christianity is supposed to be. I tell you this. I used to look when I would get into together with a big group of Christians and kind of just look at the group, the segment of the population that came. Don and I go to this pastor's conference every year over in Indiana, and sometimes while I'm there, and I feel convicted every year I shouldn't do this, but I still do. I go in, 
It's a few hundred people there. And as I'm looking across all these people at this conference, you know, and the vast majority obviously are born again on fire for the Lord, Christians really making a difference. I look across at them and my only thought is, there's some really weird people here. I mean, really strange people. And I've come to the conclusion, Christians are some of the strangest people I've ever met in my life. And you know why we're so strange? Because all the good ones, 18, 19, and 20, have an excuse. The only people left are the maimed, the lame, the poor, and the blind. That is like the perfect description of me. I am lame, maimed, poor, and blind. And guess what? Jesus loves me. And he invited me. All the good ones, they didn't want to come. See, when God gives a description of us in 1 Corinthians, he comes around and says, not many noble are called, not many good are called. It says, but what have been called? The bottom of the barrel. Those are the ones that have been called. Those are the ones that have responded to the feast. So when I see a group of Christians together, I realize we are the bottom of the barrel. And God still loves us. He still wants the maimed, the poor, the lame, the blind. He wants them. And what a beautiful picture that is of grace and mercy. See, here's the problem. As Christians, the world knows what we stand against. They know we hate this, and we hate that, and this is wrong, and this is going to send you to hell. How come the world doesn't know that we want the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind? How come the world doesn't know that? How come the world doesn't know that the unconditional love of Jesus will take you where you're at and bring you to where you're supposed to be? How come the world doesn't know that? See, and this is where it would be great if we could just stop right here at verse 24. I'm willing to bet after verse 24, there wouldn't be too many people that would disagree with this message. If we'd get up here and teach this message and say, this is Christianity. Verses 1 through 6, we want those that are sick healed, and we want religion thrown out the window and just follow the truth. Verses 7 through 11, we don't care about who you are, we just want you to serve others. Verses 12 through 14, we want you to look past your life now and look to something bigger and better. And verses 15 through 24, you get out there and you make a difference in people's lives. I don't care what your background is, how could you disagree with that? I mean, how could the atheist disagree with that? The agnostic disagree with that? No one could disagree with that. Because this is that social idea of let's all get together and help each other out. And if we could just stop at verse 24, we could all walk away today saying, yeah. Guess what? God screwed it up by doing verses 25 and 26. Now, great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them, now stop there for a second. Don't read verse 26. I know some of you are, but don't. We joke about this a lot. Anytime Jesus gets a big following, what does he do? He makes a really tough teaching. Jesus has never been interested in numbers. Never. Now, the 21st century church, everything is how big is your church? How many people do you have coming? It's not about numbers. It's about people going deeper in their walk and relationship with the Lord. So Jesus has an opportunity here. Because after this great message of verses 1 through 24, who wouldn't want to follow him? I mean, who would not want to be behind this leader that says, go to the poor of society and help them? But he does verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. What a horrible thing to say. But it's truth. Now, we have to understand a little bit here. And this word hate 
is really a bad translation. And to be quite honest, I was just talking to someone after the 8.30 service. There's not a word in our English language that does it justice. So that's why it's translated hate. This word hate literally means to prefer over somebody. So why can't the Bible just say, if anyone does not like me more than his father or mother, or if anyone does not love me more than their father and mother, because it's stronger than that. See, if if you set before me ketchup and honey mustard, I'm going to choose honey mustard. I like it more. It's not that I dislike ketchup, I just like it more. This is a stronger separation. It almost makes it sound like you're saying this, I love Jesus and I love Dawn. It's more like I love Jesus and Dawn is somewhere in Putnam County. I don't know. But, you know, I mean, it's not that I don't love Dawn, but the gulf of love between I should have for my Savior and anybody else, it's not comparable. And and so the only word we can come up with in our English language is, is hate. And it's really not a good word, but the gulf of love between I should have for my Savior and anybody else is incomparable. So when I come up to you, and who do you love? You love Jesus. There, there is, that is your main focus. Yes, you've been blessed, I hope, with a godly spouse or kids or grandkids or friends or family, brothers, sisters, mom and dad. But it does not compare to the love your Savior has for you and you have for your Savior. See, verse 26 is trying to tell us Jesus has to be first. Now, this is not some self-conscious God that has to have your worship, and he's got some self-esteem issue, and you're not loving me enough. No, it's an observation of fact. Look what Christ did for us. Look what God has done for us. Salvation, heaven, all of eternity. Why wouldn't he be number one? Why wouldn't he be the most important thing in my life? And that love that I have for God then filters down to my spouse and my kids or wherever you're at, your grandkids, your parents, whatever. But it has to be Him number one. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I don't know what your cross is. I don't know what your spiritual responsibility is in life that God has given you that calling. I know what mine is. Mine is Dawn, the kids, and Harvest Fellowship. That's my cross. That is what I am responsible for, and that's what God has asked me to bear. I don't know what yours is. If you're married, I hope it's your spouse. I hope it's your kids or grandkids. If you're not, maybe you have friends and family. Maybe your cross is the shift at line, the uh, line at shift, whatever that is you work with, and you have a responsibility to them to be a light and a witness. Or it's your sphere of influence, your friends, your family, your neighbors. I don't know. Maybe it's your ministry at church, at home. But you have a spiritual responsibility in verse 27. And God says, I have given you this spiritual responsibility. You need to do it. Now, what happens here a lot is there's somebody that sits there and says, well, I don't know what my cross is. And I disagree with you on that. Because I've had people come in and they sit down and they say, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And you know what my great theological response back to that is? Well, what do you think you're supposed to do? And guess what? 99 times out of 100, they say, well, I think I'm probably supposed to do this. There's your cross. Why don't we do it? Because we want a different cross. We want an easier one, a lighter one. You know how much easier my cross would be if I was married to them instead of this person? You know how much easier my cross would be if I had kids like them? Man, if I had co-workers like you, how much easier my cross would be? Boy, if I had your health, how much easier my cross would be? Instead of carrying the cross that God gave you, you spend all your time analyzing and comparing 
someone else's cross. You take the cross that God gave you. And you live it, you work it, and you minister with it. So after all this now, Jesus says, do you want this? Are you willing to make this commitment? Verse 28, for which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. Saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. Very simply, what Jesus is saying is, look at the commitment I'm asking of you. I'm asking you in verses 18, 19, and 20 to not make excuses. I'm asking you in verses 26 and 27 to put me first and to do the calling I've given you. And he goes, before you make this commitment of following me, he asks in verses 28 through 32, are you willing to do this? Now what happens is, we look at verses 28 through 32, and we say, well, I can't commit to that. So then my response is, I guess I just won't. That's not the answer. If you are looking at this and saying, Lord, I can't commit to this, the answer is, why? Why not? If you look at everything he's done, what is it in your life, what is it in this world that you're holding on to so strongly that you can't put Christ first? This is not a message to convict you. This is not a message to make you feel bad. It's a simple question. If you look at this and you look at what he's asking you to quit making excuses, to put me first, and to take the cross I give you and follow it, the simple question is, what in this world is so powerful that you say that trumps God? The truth of the matter is, there's nothing. Yes, he's asking a lot. Yes, it's a commitment. That's why verse 33, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. See, Jesus set the example for us. Can you turn with me to Hebrews 12 real quick? We'll finish with this. Hebrews 12. What isn't in this world that is that important to us that it trumps leaving all to follow the Lord? Hebrews 12, please. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Let's look at the example of Jesus of leaving all to follow the Lord. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. First point, verse 1. Why is it that I'm not giving everything to the Lord? Verse 1. Sin. I allow things into my life, so as I try to run the race for the Lord, I grab as much extra weight as I can. And I can't run. Very simply put, is there something in your life that is a sin that is bringing you down, holding you back, keeping you from everything you can in the Lord that's helping you make excuses? That sin needs to go. And then what do we do in verse 2? We look into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus, the cross to him was shame. It took endurance. It was pain. But why did he do it? Because the joy that was before him. See, as a believer, why is it that I don't show love to the maimed, the poor, the blind, the crippled? Why is it as a believer do I make excuses? 
Why is it as a believer I can't put Christ first? Because the problem is my mindset is so limited, I think of the things of this world rather than the eternity that is waiting for me. And so I become selfish. So I think about me. I think about where I sit in life. How come no one notices what I do, what I say? How come I'm not appreciated at home, at life, at work like I should be? See, I'm not looking to the joy that is set before me. I'm just looking at the cross. Jesus looked past the cross to the joy that was after. And I don't know where you're at in life, but you need to look past where you're at in life right now to the eternity that waits you. You need to look past that to serving and loving and ministering to others and not worrying so much about you. That's ministry. Verse 3, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. See, what happens in verse 3? I become weary and discouraged. Why? Because it's all about me. Woe is me. My health, my lot in life, my choices, my marriage, my kids, everything. Woe is me. I'm weary. I'm discouraged. Look at how bad I have it. No. Look past that. Serving, ministering, loving Christ first. The joy. I've tried that. I've struggled with that. Don't you think I've tried to move past my lot in life to see the big picture? Look at the honesty of verse 4. You have not resisted yet to bloodshed, striving against sin. You probably haven't tried as hard as you think you've tried. Now, before you get mad at me and yell at me and say, you don't know what I've tried, you don't know what I've done... You don't know how I've tried to work through these issues, these problems. You don't know that. So how dare you say that? You're right. I don't know what you've tried and done. But you know what? I look at my own life. And the times I thought I gave it my all, there's always more left to give. The time that I thought I sacrificed it all for the Lord. Lord, I have left nothing on the table. It's all yours. God always gets into my heart and says, James, you got a little bit of stuff way back in the back there. Can we clean that closet out? See, that's what the Lord does. See, he says, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. He says that through him I'm more than a conqueror. So sometimes when I want to give up and I become very needy and very whiny and very weary and very discouraged, God says, wait a second, you haven't resisted yet to the point of bloodshed. He says, you and I can do this. We can do this because the Lord's strength is limitless. I tell you, it just truly is. One of my favorite verses to give people is Isaiah 40, 31, where it says, You shall mount up on the wings of eagles. You shall run and not be weary. God's strength is your strength. And I don't know where you're at right now. And you may be weary, discouraged, ready to give up. Ah, no. Look past this world. Look towards eternity. Realize what God has done. Look realize what God is doing. And you know what? Get out there and love the maimed, the poor, the blind. Crippled. You may say, I'm the maimed, lame, poor, blind, and crippled. You may be. And God still loves you. And that's the beauty of this. It's the absolute beauty. Marv, if we can come forward here for the final song. As he's getting ready, let's pray about this.